This morning, we will uh, be looking at one particular chapter in 1 Corinthians. So you can go ahead and open to the epistle, 1 Corinthians. And in this epistle, it's where the Apostle Paul addresses a, a very serious problem in a very problematic church. This church was located in the famous Romanized city of Corinth, a prosperous colony of the empire. And it was not only a major hub for commerce in the Mediterranean world, but was also a place of abundant entertainment and sensual indulgence. There was rampant immorality among those who lived and visited there, so much so that the people throughout the empire associated the very name of the city with debauchery. Kind of like we do with Las Vegas, which we know as Sin City. And the city itself embraces that and, and tries to entice visitors with the slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Shh. Corinth was the Sin City of the Roman Empire. And in this spiritually dark and morally bankrupt place, the light of the gospel came through the evangelistic ministry of the Apostle Paul. When Paul came to Corinth and began preaching the gospel, we are told in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A church was thus established in this famously decadent city. And when the time came for Paul to leave Corinth and return to his home church at Antioch in Syria, he took it upon himself sometime after he left to to write to the Corinthians about the importance of maintaining their Christian witness and personal holiness in the hedonistic city in which they lived. And he told them in particular not to associate with sexually immoral people. However, instead of heeding Paul's instruction and maturing in Christ, the Corinthian church was prideful and thus remain spiritually immature. Instead of growing in holiness, they were stumbling in worldliness. Sounds like many churches today. There was carnality and confusion, divisiveness and disorder, insolence and immorality. The church was a mess. When Paul was on his third missionary journey, and he was staying at Ephesus at that time, a group from Corinth visited him and gave him a report of the troubling things that were taking place in their church. And they brought also the questions they had on a number of matters. And in light of this report, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians. And in the fifth chapter of this epistle, we see Paul address an egregious case of immorality that needed to be swiftly dealt with. Our text is chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, 
And we're going to read to start. We're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is not a popular passage in our culture. But having read the whole passage, it's clear that while, the Paul, that while Paul did indeed address the serious matter of immorality in the Corinthian church, there was a more fundamental problem that he was confronting and correcting here. The sinfulness of sexual immorality is more specifically addressed in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. But here, Paul was more focused on the underlying issue, and that was the absence of discipline. The Corinthian church was not practicing church discipline, but was instead dangerously tolerating sin. Paul with urgency, rebuked the church's negligence and clarified the church's responsibility. We see the reprimand in verses 1 through 2, the remedy in verses 3 through 5, the reasoning in verses 6 through 8, and the requirement in verses 9 through 13. First, the reprimand. Verses 1 through 2, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. From verse 1, we see that the egregiously sinful behavior was 
that was being left unaddressed was incest and perhaps even incestuous adultery. One of the men in the church was known to be having sexual relations with his stepmother. According to the law of God for Israel, the penalty for adultery and the penalty for incest between a son and a stepmother was death, capital punishment for his nation. In Leviticus 18, we read that the sexual sins of incest and adultery along with homosexuality and bestiality, are especially loathsome to God. God had commanded his covenant people, Israel, not to engage in such detestable sexual practices. He gave them the following warning in Leviticus 18, verses 24 to 30. He told them, do not defile yourselves After listing out the sins, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. For the people I am driving out before you have defiled themselves in all these ways. Because the entire land has become defiled, I am punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to vomit them out. Mind you, this is the people who were there before Israel. God gave his law to Israel. The people without the law were still what? Accountable to God for their evil, for their wickedness, and they were judged. So we, not, we should not think that the standard God has laid down has no application to us. It is his righteous standard. He said, you must obey all my decrees and regulations. You must not commit any of these detestable sins. This applies both to native-born Israelites and the foreigners living, foreigners living among you. All these detestable activities are practiced by the people of the land where I am taking you, and this is how the land has become defiled. So do not defile the land and give it a reason to vomit you out, as it will vomit out the people who live there now. Whoever commits any of these detestable sins will be cut off from the community of Israel. So obey my instructions and do not defile yourselves by committing any of these detestable practices that were committed by the people who lived in the land before you. I am the Lord, your God. Did you hear the similarities in what was said there to what we read in 1 Corinthians 5? There was a call to abstain from sexual immorality and to expel those who make a practice of it from the group lest their defiling influence leads to greater corruption within the group and brings the judgment of God upon them all. Now, when Paul brought up the case of incest at Corinth, he he stated that it was of a kind that was not tolerated even among pagans. As it was detestable, shameful, and abhorrent to God, so it was also even to the godless. While incest and adultery each were crimes according to Roman law, there was was room for leniency in the judgments depending on the situation. However, there was no leniency for incest committed through adultery. This was considered such a serious crime that it was not subject to a five-year statute of limitations like other crimes. 
And those found guilty of it could be stripped of their citizenship and property and banished from the city or even be exiled to a distant island. Paul's statement, given his familiarity, familiarity with Roman law, seems to indicate that the egregious offense at Corinth was, in fact, incestuous adultery. But either way, the pagans did not tolerate these offenses. There were laws against them. The godless pagan Roman Empire did not tolerate this kind of behavior among its citizens, and yet the Corinthian church was tolerating it from one of its members. By their complacency and to their shame, they had encouraged and enabled this wicked behavior. They were, as Paul said in verse 2, arrogance. In the previous chapters, Paul had been addressing the foolish pridefulness of the Corinthians. Their arrogance had led to factions and favoritism within the church. And here it is shown to have led to shameful permissiveness of immoral conduct. How arrogant. One commentator put it this way, they were actually smug over their newfound enlightened tolerance as Christians. They had come up with their own standard that they thought was even better than the one given to them by the Apostle Paul, which was God's standard. They were more tolerant. Well, what good was all their supposed spiritual learning and insight and giftedness if they were choosing to ignore and thus condoning the vile behavior of one of their fellow church members? They boasted in a lot of things, and yet they left this matter alone. The local church is one body consisting of many members, and when one of its members chooses to live an immoral life, the only right response is to be sorrowful and to sorrowfully remove that member from its fellowship. That is the only right response. The church had received its needed rebuke from Paul, and now Paul gave them the remedy for their shameful situation in verses 3 through 5. What is the remedy? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul, with the full weight of his authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, commanded the Corinthians with the utmost urgency to do what they should have done, excommunicate the offender from their church. They were not to wait for the apostle Paul to arrive, but were to take immediate action as a church body and expel the man from their fellowship. The Lord Jesus taught that when his disciples gathered in his name to address the unrepentant sin of a church member, he would be in their midst and he would affirm their judgment as to whether or not the member had at that point truly repented and could thus be forgiven and restored. If not, 
that individual was then to be put out of the fellowship and regarded as a spiritual outsider. It doesn't matter if the unrepentant member is a wealthy patron of the church. Because in, in some commentaries about this passage, they're trying to think of the situation with this one individual and saying, well, maybe he was a wealthy patron. Maybe he, was, he had high status in society and they, were, they didn't want to go there and even bring it up. But again, notice the attitude that Paul addressed among them, right? They were arrogant. But the reality is it doesn't really matter who this man was. What mattered was what he was doing and what they were not doing. So it doesn't matter if he was a wealthy patron of the church. It doesn't matter if the unrepentant member is a gifted member or a dynamic leader in the church. It doesn't matter if the unrepentant member is a person of high status in society or has a lot of influence in the surrounding community. Perhaps every church has some mixture of people in those categories, but that doesn't shield them from godly accountability and the standards of the Lord for his church. The church belongs to Christ. And he has given every congregation the authority and the responsibility to excommunicate unrepentant members from their local fellowship. If a church neglects that responsibility, then that church is dishonoring and disobeying the Lord. No matter what great things they might be claiming to do for him. It is the Lord's church. Now, Paul does not use the word excommunication in verse 5, but instead refers to the act as delivering the offender over to Satan, that is, to his domain. When you are expelled from the fellowship of the church, when a person is expelled, they are in Satan's domain. They are shut out from the caring and sanctifying environment of the church. Out in the darkness. And while some may think this to be harsh and unloving, and when we read that, we're not used to that, are we? It sounds harsh. It sounds, dare we say, unloving. But lest we think that, the reality is it's actually the opposite. As can be seen in Paul's statement, this action is intended to lead the man to feel the full weight and shame of his sin and its earthly consequences in order that he might finally end his fleshly ways and be humbled and broken over his sin and repent in the fear of the Lord. If that happens, then, as Paul says, his spirit will be saved in the end. Is it not a good thing then? Would it not be worth it? However, if he doesn't repent, then it will have been because he was a false convert all along and nothing more, and he will die in his sins. The Lord knows, but we still have a responsibility nonetheless. Excommunicating unrepentant church members is a, a hard but loving thing to do. If the offenders are genuine Christians who are for a time yielding to the flesh rather than walking in the spirit, 
Because last time I checked, Christians still sin. Sometimes get caught in sin. Walk in the flesh rather than the spirit by choice because they are no longer enslaved to sin. But if, if they are a genuine Christian doing this, the reality is then they will eventually repent because the Lord will keep them. He will turn them. They belong to him. But that's in the Lord's hands. And so at this point, this action is taken because the church has done all it can do for uh, this person. The Lord knows, and if they belong to the Lord, he will take care of it. But the church is relinquished of its responsibility when it has exhausted all the means. And now the church has a responsibility for the Lord to excommunicate. We are not the Savior. The, the, us, even as one church body, are not the Savior. If, if a person belongs to the Lord, he will keep them and turn them back from their way, evil ways. If the offenders, though, are actually false converts, well, then excommunication will emphasize the reality of their self-deception and their false assurance of salvation so that they might, in turn, genuinely repent and turn in faith to the Lord, really for the first time, genuinely, and thus be saved. That is also in the Lord's hands. So we could see how, as hard as and difficult as the task is, it can have a good outcome. If they're genuinely saved, it'll ultimately the Lord will bring to repentance. If they're not, it'll actually shine a light on the reality that they had a false profession, and now they might genuinely repent and be saved. So having given the, the remedy for the situation in Corinth, which was formal excommunication of the incestuous man from the church, Paul then gave the primary reasoning for this practice of church discipline in verses 6 through 8. He said, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven was well known for its unseen yet permeating activity. According to one scholar, in ancient times, instead of yeast, a piece of dough was held over from one week's baking to the next. Just a piece. By then, it was fermenting, and so could cause fermentation in the new lot of dough. Put it in there, ferments and it causes it to rise in the heat. Paul's point in saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump was that, and again using it metaphorically to refer to the matter of sin, his point was that willful immorality, the willful immorality of the one incestuous man, would have a morally corrupting influence on the rest of the church if his sin continued to be ignored and he was allowed to remain in the fellowship. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Of course, there were, well, there were other corrupt individuals in the church who were being a bad influence at Corinth. This one man wasn't the only one. And Paul gave a similar warning concerning them when he said in, in chapter 15, do not be deceived. 
Bad company ruins good morals. This is similar to a familiar saying in our culture, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch or barrel. It's believed that that saying originated from the famous 14th century English poet Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the following in one of his Canterbury Tales. Best toss a rotten apple from the hoard before it rot all the fruit that's present. This last saying states, really, what all the previous ones imply. Toss the bad apple to preserve the rest of the bunch. Separate from the bad company to maintain good morals. Cleanse out the old leaven to protect the new batch of dough. Paul then used the Passover feast as an illustration of our salvation and new life in Christ. The Passover referred to the time when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, but passed over and thus spared the Israelites. And they were spared on the condition that they, in faith, obeyed his command to apply the blood of a lamb without blemish to the doorframes of their homes. And to commemorate this event, God commanded his people to keep the annual week-long Passover feast, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And at the beginning of the week, they were to remove all leaven from their houses for this feast. And then they were to eat unleavened bread for the duration of the week. And they were to do that to celebrate God's mercy in bringing them out of Egypt. Now for Christians, here's the the connection, the similarity. We are trusting in Christ as our Passover lamb. He is the sinless Son of God who died for our sins and rose again, and on the basis of His shed blood that atones for our guilt before God, we are spared from the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. Because of Christ and trusting in Him, we have been passed over. And God has brought us out of spiritual darkness and delivered us from the enslaving power of sin. And by his grace, we, we have been given spiritual life and have been made a new creation in Christ. As Paul said to the Corinthians in verse 7, you really are unleavened. That's the new you a new creation in Christ, sanctified. You are unleavened. And at the opening of his letter to them, he addressed them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, in Christ, they... And you, in Christ, along with them, they were set apart as holy. They're sanctified, set apart as holy. And they were called to be a holy people, called to be saints. 
We are to be, in other words, we are to be in practice what we are in, by our position in Christ. We are to be in practice what we are by position in Christ. We are called to live according to our new nature in Christ. Now, as a local church, as we gather together to worship God in the fellowship of Christ, we must not have wickedness mixed with our worship. We must ensure that our membership, our congregation, remains like that new unleavened batch of dough. That's our local church, unleavened batch of dough. And if any of our members is proving to be old leaven, as evidenced by unrepentant sinful behavior, then we need to follow the steps of Matthew 18 to ensure that old leaven is cleansed out so that we as a church body are celebrating Christ in sincerity and truth. Worshiping in sincerity and truth. Now, having given the reasoning for excommunicating the incestuous man, Paul then laid out the requirement for the local church regarding its responsibility to maintain its own purity. We have a responsibility. Here is the requirement, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all mean, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So in verses 9 through 10, Paul provided, first, some clarification to the exhortation he had given to the Corinthians in his previous letter, which was plain enough to begin with, Seemed plain to me, but they were perhaps willfully being obtuse in their arrogance and their worldly attitudes. But their foolish pride, obviously, they, they had interpreted this perhaps willfully to pertain to the unbelieving outsiders and not to people in their church. When he said sexually immoral, don't associate, they're like, right, yeah, there's sexually immoral people out there, but people in the church, we're good, because we all say we love Jesus. And, you know, he died for our sins, so we're forgiven. It's okay. Simply put, Christians are not to associate with any individuals who profess to be Christian, but are persisting in immoral behavior or ungodly conduct. That's the requirement. We are not to associate with any individuals who profess to be Christian but are persisting in immoral behavior or ungodly conduct. These are not past sins that have been repented of. Rather, they are present, ongoing patterns of sin that characterize a person's conduct and are not repented of even after that person is confronted about them. The sexually immoral person is one who is engaging in sinful sexual activity, which really is any kind of sex that is not between a biological man 
and a biological woman within the covenant of marriage. Thus saith the Lord. Anything outside of that is perversion, is sin. The greedy person is the one who is obsessed with material gain, never being content, but always striving for more. Interesting that it's in there. The greedy person in our culture, but I suppose maybe you'll know it when you see it, what they're all about, obsession with material gain, never content, but always striving for more. That's really their, their drive. Well, then you know. The idolater, in the case of a professing Christian, of course, who would the idolater be? Well, the idolater would be a syncretist, one who is simultaneously engaging in the practices of any false religion. We can think of that, right? People who kind of mix their associations, dabble in practices that God says are evil. Any false system of religion that they're simultaneously participating in some way in that, but yet calling themselves a Christian and coming to your church. That'd be the idolater. The reviler is one who is verbally abusive and aims to tear other people down using slander and insults. Mind you, a pattern of this, right? This is what they do. This is what they're like. The drunkard is the one who regularly gets inebriated with alcohol or drugs. The swindler is one who uses deceptive practices to cheat people out of money or property. Shameful behavior. Ungodly, wicked behavior. And these are all people who are defined by that. They are these kind of people, and they are doing these things. If a professing Christian is known for persisting in any of these sins, then the church is called to do what? To separate from and no longer associate with that person. You have an obligation to the Lord to do that. Paul said in verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. And God is the one who is calling them the evil person. By his definition, what they are doing makes them the evil person who must be put out from the fellowship. The church is required to remove that person from their fellowship, and individual members of the church are no longer to be in his or her company. Did you hear that? Do not associate. So even if there's a, a formal procedure in the church gathering, and somebody's put out, but maybe your friends with that individual are like, hey, yeah, that was kind of harsh. And you're meeting up with that person. You're in sin. Do not associate. You have a personal obligation to separate yourself from that person. Paul says, in case people think there's kind of a middle ground here, he says, we must not even eat with such a person. Total separation. So even if we had had a close friendship with this person, our greater loyalty must be to Christ. And on a final note, look at what Paul said in the second half of verse 12. He's speaking about the Lord's requirement for his church. He asked them rhetorically, 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He said the J word. But who is it? Not the world. They're under the judgment of God. It is those inside the church whom you are to judge. Now, Paul is not saying here that we are to become hypercritical fault finders. Rather, he was referring to our call to be faithful in judging clear cases of unrepentant sin and ungodly living within the church. Like, for instance, a member being sexually immoral. I mean, that's the context of the passage. So we don't want to take that statement and go around and be a fault finder, hypercritical. Did you slip up? Right? The context is clear, obvious cases of unrepentant, immoral behavior, ungodly behavior, living in sin and being unrepentant. Paul couldn't have made it any clearer that our corporate responsibility as a church is to expel that person from our fellowship and disassociate completely. And this is the most loving thing to do, as I said before. But let's just stress that again. It is the loving thing to do. How? Well, it it shows your love for God, since you are choosing to trust and obey his will on this matter. It shows your love for Christ and his church by fully embracing the process that will keep a corrupting influence from spreading among the members of his body. It shows your love for the unrepentant member, even the unrepentant member, and it shows love for this person by refusing to coddle and enable him in his sin so that he might do some serious soul-searching and, yes, Lord willing, come to genuine repentance because in that we would rejoice. But that's not for us to decide. We cannot make that happen. If it is our desire as a church to be an effective witness for Christ to the world, then we must be zealous to maintain our purity as a local church. We must take collective responsibility in practicing church discipline as it's laid out the steps in Matthew 18 and even to that final step. And we must be supportive of removing from our fellowship and separating from anyone who persists in unrepentant sin. If we care about our witness in the world, if we care about being faithful in fulfilling the Great Commission, we must fulfill our responsibility in this regard. Remember, Summit Bible Church, well, it's not our church, it's the Lord's church. No, no matter how long we might have been attending here, it is always the Lord's church. And should we defy the Lord and rebel against his will for us and persist in sin, we have forfeited the privilege of being counted as one of the members. We must be put out until we come to our senses and repent because it's the Lord and he is holy and he must be honored. He died for the church and he died for us to set us free from our sins, right? But to make us what? His holy people. Sanctified not only by position, 
but also progressively by the work of the Spirit to be conformed to his likeness. And this step in the process of, or discipline of church discipline is a means he's appointed to help us get there together. May we be faithful to do that. May we, even as we think about our growth as a church, numerically, right? That's, that's always an exciting thing to see. But it is more important, it's of the utmost importance that we are morally pure, that we are a morally pure and not a morally compromised church. This is not a popular practice. People usually like to leave churches and go somewhere where they're not going to meddle. We need to be a church that is about the Lord's business, and he will bless that, even if that means we see slow growth or no growth because people don't want to be involved in that. Leave that in the Lord's hands. It's his church. He is building it. We are called to be good stewards. We have a responsibility to one another that we might pursue holiness together for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your instruction to us. And uh, I just ask that you would help us all to to be sensitive to the things you have said in your word and to make sure we're conforming to your standard for us rather than conform to the world's standards. That we would treat sin seriously, first and foremost, our own. That we would put it off and put it to death. And that we together would strive for holiness and purity as a church, Lord. That we, in order that we might truly be salt and light in this fallen world, a faithful and effective witness of the transformative power of your salvation. Lord Jesus, this is your church. Help us to honor you by obeying your will for us. We call you, Lord, help us to do what you say. Help us to practice the things you have given us to do and commanded of us, Lord. And we pray that we would always see this as your church, the church that you are building, and that we would see ourselves as instruments in your hands to do the work of sanctification, to help us grow in our sanctification together so that we might mature together in love and in holiness and in the truth and so reflect your likeness, Lord. We ask you to help us in these things. Amen.